Well, good morning, church. I love being here to worship together. It's just a wonderful time for us to encourage each other and uh, to praise our God. Obviously, I am uh, not Kyle Dingus. Uh, Kyle graciously invited me to preach today. This has been a I think a rather challenging and long week for him, and so this gives him a little bit of a break, and I just appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to preach. Kyle's been preaching a series from the book of Acts, which he is calling Church on Fire. And we're going to be talking today from Acts chapter 12. He has been preaching from the earlier chapters of Acts, but he said when he invited me, you can just preach on whatever text you like. So I went to one of my favorite chapters in Acts, which is Acts chapter 12. So we're jumping an entire 10 chapters from the end of chapter 2 all the way to chapter 12. And I'm sure Kyle will come back and fill some of those uh, chapters between 2 and, and 12. The book of Acts tells us about the explosive growth of the early church. And it was exciting but it was not without a lot of difficulty and challenge. First century church had relatively few periods of peace. The church had many enemies, not the least of whom was a man named King Herod, whom we read about here in the 12th chapter of Acts. The church was probably only 10, maybe as old as 13 years had it been in existence by the time Acts chapter 12 unfolds. And so we read about Herod and his attack against the church. This was not the King Herod that so many of us think about when we think about the one who tried to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem when Jesus was born, obviously trying to kill this new Messiah. This is not that Herod. There was an entire dynasty of Herods that uh, ruled on the throne in Israel among the Jews. This Herod was the grandson of Herod the Great. And this Herod in Acts chapter 12 was the nephew of another famous Herod, Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist. But all of these King Herods were just bad actors. There was just a whole series of ruthless, conniving puppet kings who tried to play sometimes pretty successfully, both sides of the political fence. They had to please all the Roman authorities on one hand, and yet they were trying desperately to make the Jews as happy as they possibly could. Now, all the Herods really didn't care anything about the Jews. The only reason why they wanted to make the Jews as happy as they could is because it simply made life less troublesome for them. And one way Herod tried to please the Jews was to persecute the followers of Jesus Christ. As far as the Romans were concerned, as long as it didn't create any problems for them, they didn't really care what Herod did. Just don't create problems for us and don't create a bunch of problems among the Jews because then we have to deal with them. And so Herod's walking this very thin, fine line between the Romans and between the Jews. And so we come to the very first verse of Acts chapter 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death. 
with the sword. Now the James that's mentioned here, because there's two different James mentioned in this text. One that's mentioned later is James, the half-brother of Jesus. But the one that was killed by Herod is James, the brother of John. And if you think about the early calling of Jesus, his disciples to him, the very first two disciples he called were James and John. And John and James, along with Peter, became a part of that very intimate, tight inner circle of Jesus' disciples. So when James is executed, it is a major blow to that Jerusalem church. And it created, no doubt, a great deal of fear and a lot of concern. And so even in that chapter 12, where we see Herod attacking these two prominent leaders, one James, he's about to attack Peter as well. You see, this is not the first time not the first time at all that Christians have suffered persecution. We go back to Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8. In every one of those chapters, we read about stories of persecution, jailings, interrogations, floggings, a threat of death against their lives, and even the story of a deacon named Stephen who because he preached the gospel to a hostile group of Jewish leaders was stoned to death as a man named Saul stood by giving his approval. And following Stephen's execution, there was great persecution that came upon the church that motivated many of the followers of Jesus to flee Jerusalem to search for safety from that persecution. Now, as bad as all of that persecution had been, here in Acts chapter 12, the attack against them is ramped up to a whole new level. James was the first apostle to be martyred. Stephen had already been killed, but this is the first apostle to be killed. And when Herod saw that James' death had pleased the Jewish leaders, he then steps up the persecution with even greater intensity by attacking the leader of the apostles, Peter himself. So let's look at verse 3. When Herod saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So there's Peter, locked behind heavy iron prison gates. Security is extraordinarily heavy. We've got one man who's guarded by four teams of four soldiers each, 16 in all. Every three hours, another group of four comes in. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And this is not just a few hours that Peter's in this situation where he is chained each hand to the hand, the wrist of the soldier on either side of him. Herod, you see, had arrested him sometime probably early in that week of the Feast of Dedication, which is leading up to the Passover. And so he doesn't want to try, 
give a trial and execute Peter until after Passover is, is finished. And so for several days, Peter is in this prison chained to two guards. That's a lot of security. Now, why do you think they had that much security for this one guy? Well, back in Acts chapter 5, Peter and John had been put in jail, but had been miraculously delivered. And no doubt that word had gotten out all among the Jewish people. And so not only the Jewish leaders, but Herod himself wanted to make absolutely certain there was no escape again. And so that's the reason for this high level of security. Here's Peter, surrounded 24 hours a day, seven days a week. His situation seemed hopeless. His escape from prison seemed absolutely impossible. Herod had already killed James, and it appeared that it would only be a few days until Herod would successfully execute Peter as well. So Peter is doomed unless God directly intervenes, which then brings us to verse 5. Verse 5 in the text says this, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now, that's a key passage. See, these were not just a few prayers here and there that the church was praying. The sentence structure and the grammar here tells us that what the church was doing was they were praying continuously. They were praying around the clock. And these prayers were earnest prayers. They were fervent prayers. So let's keep reading. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and the second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. I don't know about you, but one of the interesting things about this text to me is that Peter, on the night before he's expecting his execution, he is soundly asleep. How many of you think you could be chained between two guards knowing you're going to be killed the next day and be soundly asleep? And yet that's exactly what he's doing. Maybe Peter thinks that he's just going to, by his death, bring glory to God and so he's at peace with it. Or maybe he thinks that God is going to rescue him the next day. We don't know for sure what Peter was thinking, but we do know this for certain. He was so soundly asleep that when that angel entered the prison and the bright light that accompanied him in that prison, Peter didn't even wake up. 
the angel literally has to poke Peter in the side and say, quick, man, get up. And Peter stands up and the chains that were around his wrist just drop to the floor. The story really gets, I think, here just a little bit funny. Because Peter's in such a half-sleep stupor still that the angel had to tell him to put his clothes on. The angel had to tell him to follow me out of this jail. And Peter followed him out and was still so groggy he didn't know if what was happening to him was real or if he was dreaming. And so on their exit from prison, the angel and Peter passed that third guard that was probably somewhere in the hallway between the room where he had been held and the door. They pass that one and they get to the guard who's standing at the gate. Text doesn't tell us anything, but I assume that the angel made sure those two guards were asleep. And then the door of the prison just opens by itself. And once they're safely out in the street, the angel disappears. And here's Peter, fully awake now, realizing that God had sent an angel. I love that song, Mark, we sang about angel armies. Here's an angel that God has sent to deliver him out of that prison. But he's standing here in the middle of the street in the dark of night, not knowing exactly what to do next, where to go. He must have been thinking, what do I do now? Where do I go now? Surely the soldiers are going to be coming after me pretty soon to re-arrest me. And that's where the story then picks up again in verse 12. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter no doubt knew the streets of Jerusalem pretty well. And he knew that there was at least one place he could go where likely he could take refuge and find safety from soldiers who might be looking for him. And he thinks of Mary. Now, Mary was a very popular name in the first century. It's still a popular name. My mother-in-law is named Mary. I have a daughter named Mary. And so many different Marys in the New Testament, it may be a little confusing to keep up with which Mary is Mary here. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is Mary, the mother of John Mark, who later becomes uh, a person who accompanies Paul and Barnabas on one of their missionary journeys. And Mary has a house of significant enough size that she can hold a pretty good crowd of people in there. And apparently this house has a courtyard, and that courtyard is guarded by a gate. And so that's where Peter flees. And this is where the story to me really gets even more humorous. Verse 13 says, Peter knocked at the entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. So here are all these people inside Mary's house. They are praying continuously for Peter and for his release. He finally knocks on the door of that courtyard. Rhoda comes to see him, and she she almost can't believe what she's hearing. She recognizes his voice, and instead of opening the gate and letting him in, she immediately turns and runs in the house and announces, Hey, guys, Peter is out there at the gate. They don't believe her. They just don't believe her at all. 
Now, here's the truly surprising thing about this whole story to me, and this is not funny. Even though they had been praying nonstop for Peter for several days, apparently nobody in that house could believe that Peter was actually standing at the gate knocking to gain entrance. How do you explain that? Apparently, they thought she was crazy. As a matter of fact, that's what they say to her. Look at verse 15. You're out of your mind, they told her. And when she kept insisting that it was so, she said, it must be his angel. Now, that sounds like a little bit of a strange answer they gave to her. It must be his angel? What, what's this all about? Well, apparently, many Jews in this time believed in guardian angels. I, I sort of believe there are guardian angels. and Maybe you do as well. I think there's some indication for that. Even Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 talked about the children whose angels watch out over them. But there was a fairly widespread belief among the Jews in the first century in guardian angels. And so when the people in the house heard Rhoda's words that Peter's at the door, they don't really believe that Peter's at the door. Probably what some of them assumed was that Herod had already killed Peter and that his angel was there because you see part of that belief in in guardian angels was that a guardian angel could come back in the form of a human being to look like the individual who had just died. So perhaps some of them thought when Rhoda says he's at the gate, they didn't believe it, oh, it must be his angel, that Herod had already killed Peter and that it was his guardian angel that was standing outside the door. I don't know if that's what they were thinking. But if it was, imagine the dismay, how disheartened those people inside must have felt to think that we've been praying for Peter for these number of days and Herod's already killed him. And all the while, Peter is still standing out there in the street, softly knocking on the door as quietly as he could so as not to arouse any kind of suspicion from nosy, unfriendly neighbors thinking to himself, come on, guys, somebody come back here and open this gate and let me in the house. Look at verses 16 and 17. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him. They were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Now, the two phrases in this passage that we've been studying this morning that strike me the most are in verses 5 and 17. Because in verse 5, the text tells us the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Earnestly praying for him. And yet, verse 17 says, when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. You see the irony in those two statements? On one hand, they've been praying earnestly, God, please deliver Peter from prison. And then when God does, they don't believe it. They were astonished when they saw him as if, Ooh, 
Who could have seen this coming? And yet, let's don't point the finger at them too quickly because how often do we do the same thing? How often do we pray not really expecting that God will answer? You see, that's a stark, astounding contrast to me. How often have you been surprised when God has answered your prayers? Many times we do not ask God to do the impossible because we don't think he will do it anyway. Yet James, the half-brother of Jesus, tells us in his epistle in chapter 4, verse 2, you do not have. Why, James? You do not have because you do not ask God. Or when God does answer our prayers, we're prone to think, well, isn't that a pleasant coincidence? Kind of like what William Temple wrote years ago, tongue-in-cheek, coincidences happen much more often when you pray. We should not be surprised when God answers our prayers. The reality, however, is that God does not answer every prayer in the way we want him to. Why God allowed James, on one hand, to be killed and why he decided that Peter should be spared, none of us know. It's a mystery. Sometimes God says yes to our prayers. Sometimes God says no to our prayers. Sometimes God says wait. You're just going to have to wait on this one. God moves in mysterious ways, the song says, his wonders to perform. Mysterious ways in carrying out his will that we do not always understand. And that huge mystery ought to create within us a tremendous sense of awe and wonder and reverence for God. I'm reminded of what God said through the prophet Isaiah recorded in chapter 55. He said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. We don't know why sometimes God gives us what we ask for. And then other times he does not give us what we ask for or tells us to wait. But regardless of whether God says yes or whether he says no, or whether he says, wait, we still must pray earnestly for God to do things that only God can do. How God answers our prayers and when God answers our prayers may indeed surprise us. But the fact that God does answer prayers should never surprise us, never astound us. So, How are we supposed to take the surprise out of answered prayer? How can we pray with a greater sense of expectation that God will move? Let me offer three directives. Number one, pray in faith. Pray in faith. I'm afraid that some of us don't believe that prayer works. Not really. If we did believe that God answers prayer... I think we'd pray more often, and I think we would pray more earnestly. If we place limits on what God can do or what God will do, then this is what will happen. 
Our prayers will be few and our request will be small and the results will be powerless and ineffective. So if we do have a lack of faith that God will answer prayers, then what are we supposed to do about that? Well, let me make a couple of suggestions here. Number one is, let's admit to God our lack of faith. Just be honest about it and tell him that. Maybe we can be like the father who brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus and said these words. He said, Lord, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can do anything. To which Jesus responded, if you can, everything is possible to him who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe but help me in my unbelief. See, I think that's where all of us are. We believe God answers prayers, but sometimes we just, we're so filled with doubt and we're so fearful to ask for those really things that just seem outrageously impossible to God. And so rather than asking, we, we just don't ask at all. We don't pray. Trust that God will answer your prayers, not always in the way that you want him to, but in the ways that God knows are best, in his wisdom that we have to trust, trusting him to walk with you and me through any difficult time or difficult experience that we're going through, trusting that he will never leave us. Another way that we can help overcome our lack of faith is to read the scriptures and to ponder the scriptures, especially those passages that talk about great heroes of faith who prayed. If you read through the book of Acts, at least 18 times in the book of Acts, we read that the church assembled together to pray together. Read stories about people like Moses and Hannah and Elijah and Daniel and Elizabeth and Paul and certainly of Jesus. Go to school on them as, as prayer warriors. And look at the faith they had to pray the prayers that they prayed. Let those men and women be an encouragement and an inspiration to us. So first, pray in faith. Here's the second directive. Pray with perseverance. I do believe that this church is a praying church. It's the most praying church I've ever been a part of. And I love the emphasis on prayer. I think most of us want to pray. We want to pray more, and we want to pray more earnestly, but sometimes we're just too undisciplined to persist in prayer. It's kind of like our knowledge about eating a good diet and getting regular exercise. We know we should, and we actually want to. We just don't do it. I got an amen from somebody. But I think in regard to prayer, we need to just sort of take advisement from that old Nike commercial, that old Nike slogan, and just do it. Let us be like the persistent widow that Jesus talked about, recorded in Luke chapter 18. In that parable, Jesus said there was a woman who came to a man and, and she just kept asking for something and asking for something and asking for something and she never could get an answer, but she just kept pounding away, excuse me, she just kept pounding away until finally the man gave her what she wanted. 
that persistence in prayer. Paul teaches us to pray continually. Or as the old King James Version translates it, pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Paul tells us this in Ephesians 6, 18. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions and with all kinds of prayers and requests. Always keep on praying. And so pray in faith. Pray with persistence. And the third directive I would offer to us is pray earnestly. Verse 5 in chapter 12 says the church was earnestly praying. That word earnestly is the very same word that we read in Luke chapter 22 about Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and the way that he prayed before he was arrested and then soon taken and crucified. And verse 22 says this, In the garden, being in much anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood. That's earnest prayer. That's fervent prayer like probably very few of us have ever known. Can you say that at least some of your prayers are characterized by earnestness and fervor? Do you occasionally agonize and weep in prayer like Jesus did in the garden? Do you ever miss a night's sleep or fast for a day in prayer concerning something that's deeply concerning to you? Do you ever get on your knees? Do you ever fall flat on your face and beg God? That's earnest prayer. We need to pray more often and we need to pray more earnestly as if our lives depended on it because they do. As if our families and our church and our healing and our future and our city and our nation and our schools and our marriages depended on it. Because often it does. James 5, 16, the same James, the half-brother of Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 16. The New International Version says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Again, I like the way the King James translates that passage you know it the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much that's fervent prayer like the christians who prayed for peter sometimes we find our challenges far exceed our ability to solve them or even to cope with them it's especially at times like this, that we need to pray with great earnestness, believing that God hears and that he will answer our prayers. Let me ask the worship team if they'll make their way to the stage and our shepherds and their wives and other prayer leaders, if you'll make yourselves available around the walls. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, thank you for hearing our prayers. We do believe that you lean forward to listen when we pour our hearts out to you. Forgive us when we fail to pray, Lord. Forgive us when we pray not expecting you to act. Forgive us for our small thinking and our feeble requests. 
and for our reliance upon ourselves instead of upon you. Teach us to pray confidently and boldly, knowing that you are a great God and the only God, powerful and unlimited in your ability to accomplish good things for us and for your glory. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.